You're listening to Beyond the Class, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cape Breton University. I'm your host, AJ Fraser, and in this episode, we tackle one of the most talked about and challenging issues facing universities today. Academic integrity, plagiarism, contract cheating, intellectual honesty. These are constantly at the front of mind for many faculty across schools and academic disciplines. And here at the CTL, the complexities of academic dishonesty are discussed and rehashed both within our department and with our institutions teaching faculty on a weekly, if not daily basis in some way, shape or form. How do we know students are getting credit for work completed entirely by their hand? Are online quizzes and exams being written in rooms full of people sharing answers? Is a final paper as easy to complete as running someone else's paper through a piece of paraphrasing software? And how much of a responsibility of instructors is it to seek out instances of impropriety and do the difficult detective work it sometimes takes to determine whether or not a student is presenting something original? Faculty are confused and often frustrated by these perceived infractions and the lack of systems and methods of preventing and detecting cheating and plagiarism. And it leaves them feeling like they're isolated with the wool over their eyes. My guest today is Dr. Andy Parnaby, Dean of the School of Arts and Social Sciences and a professor of history. Andy and his colleagues in the President's Task Force on Academic Integrity have been hard at work to establish a new and innovative way of approaching this complex issue at CBU. There's been several strides forward in the last few years involving changes in the way we look at the culture of academic integrity, the policies that affect students and faculty, and technological solutions to common and persistent problems. Andy's one of my favorite people to talk to here at CBU, and it's been a real growth opportunity for me to work with and learn with him on a few different initiatives over the last couple of years. And it was my great pleasure to sit down and talk with him about developing a culture of academic integrity here at our school. I hope you enjoy the episode. My name is uh, Dr. Andy Barnaby. I'm the Dean of Arts and Social Sciences and an Associate Professor of History. Let's start off with a definition. What do we mean when we say academic integrity? Yeah, that's a great question. As, and it, as you can imagine, there is a you know, pretty broad, pretty diverse literature on this subject, but I'm actually pretty simple-minded about it. Um, our working definition was pretty simple. Uh, it's making ethical choices in the context of your intellectual or academic work. Um, you know, before being a dean, I, you know, I spent uh, 20 years teaching undergraduate students, and I think, you know, over that time period, my working definition was always academic integrity equals don't cheat, don't plagiarize, um, which is to define it essentially in negative terms. Um, one thing we worked through was was how do we move from that essentially negative definition of that to something that is uh, slightly more neutral, slightly positive, aspirational. And, it's, and the framework we came up with was based on that very simple definition. It's ethical decision-making in the context of academic or, or intellectual work. So the riddle became, if that's your definition, the riddle for us became, okay, well, how do we craft a, or shape an environment in which people act ethically in the context of their academic work? Um, not thinking about faculty so much, but, but, but our students, right? That's, that's really who we had in mind. 
So what does it mean to develop that culture of academic integrity? What are all the, the little nodes that feed into that? Um, and what does that end up looking like at the end of the day? Yeah, well, it's, um, it starts with a recognition of what we, what we currently do. Um, Cape Breton University, like universities across the region, across the country, we spend an enormous amount of time uh, policing student behavior. Right. We define what's bad behavior. We create these kind of semi-judicial processes to police that and prosecute that. We have penalties and 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 appeal process. It's very you know it's, we, we spend a lot of time trying to police what that means to to uh, when when students act badly. Um, our approach was okay. We recognize we got to police quote unquote bad behavior, but what does it look like to start to uh, promote? or cultivate a culture in, in which the positive behavior is encouraged, is incentivized, and is recognized. So this is the culture we're, we're, we're trying to get to. Uh, and in a way, uh, and I hope this gets to, to your question, it's, we're trying to lift the focus off that kind of judicial side, kind of the, the stick, <laughs> and move it over to the aspirational side, which would be the carrot. Um, so that, that was our first kind of intellectual challenge, like how do we get from one to the other? Now. Uh, in, in terms of practical commitments, what does that look like? As with anything, when you're working in a big organization, there's no single strategy that will do it for you. And there's no short, easy time frame. So our, our approach was to create um, uh, multiple strategies that would operate over uh, many different areas of activity to slowly over time and incrementally uh, shape this culture. So what does that mean? Like in, practically speaking, maybe I could just give you two quick, very solid examples. You know, one was the creation of a charter of academic citizenship for the university. Um, lots of universities have statements of values, you know, you know, don't cheat, don't plagiarize. These are the values we think are important. They might list them and then they kind of just sit in an academic calendar somewhere. No one reads them. No one cares. They kind of sit there. Don't do anything. And we thought, well, how do we, how do we define values that we think are important? Um, how do we flesh them out so people know what we're really talking about? They don't sit there like a philosophical discussion. They're actually things that we actually can, could use. But more importantly, how do we elevate it in terms of visibility? How do we get it out to people? So our first decision was, well, uh, instead of it leaving it in, in an academic calendar, some dusty policy document, let's create a charter that is highly visible. So, you know, we defined five core academic uh, values of academic citizenship. Uh, we've got it on a website. We've got large pop-up banners. It's in the CBU's view books. It's part of the notes we give students when we go out and recruit things like we've pushed it out into multiple areas so that's one one example of how you how you shape a culture well you got to identify the values and make them visible that, that's one strategy uh, the other is um, uh, to revise our policies when it comes to uh, policing that negative behavior so if you're going to say this is where we want you to be we've also got to put up some boundaries right we, fairness is important and revising those policies in such a way that it invites uh, faculty, staff, students, and administration to actively manage those policies as, as a way also to reinforce the culture of academic integrity. So those are two examples. One is kind of, I wouldn't say it's marketing, but it's certainly uh, on the marketing side, the educational side, maybe that's a better way to put it. And the other one's on the policy side. How do you create a policy environment which people feel like, yeah, I can work with this and I can teach with this and I can I can, I can address the bad behavior, but I can also sort of use it to, to, to shape what happens in my classroom. That first piece, I could imagine, intersects well with um, the intended graduate attributes mm -hmm. for a CBU student, right? And so what does a, you know, um, a graduated successful CBU student look like um, uh, in relation to these 
core values. And speaking of those core values, you mentioned there were five of them. Um, I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about those mm. individually. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just your just to your first point, which I which I think is a really good one. Um, you know, this sort of positive side, the aspirational side of academic integrity. Like, I'd be lying if I if I said that you know we've we've discovered something that nobody else has discovered. Like, we've pulled on a lot of good examples that are out there. And one thing that became clear to us is that you know those values uh, uh, around academic integrity, you know, originality, integrity, fairness, collegiality, and responsibility. Responsibility. If you pull them all together, what we're really saying is that a person who acts with academic integrity has a very mature relationship to knowledge, right? right? Where it comes from, um, how you create it, and and how it should be used. And to my eye, that's exactly what universities ought to be teaching. Now, that knowledge could be botany, it could be engineering, it could be chemistry, it could be history. Um, uh, you know, that, this is what we do, right? We're in the knowledge kind of business. Um, but those values are very much, I think, back to your point around graduate attributes. Yeah, a university graduate should have a mature relationship with knowledge, where it comes from, how you get it, and how you use it. So we think we're square with what university, what our core mission ought, ought to be. And you're right, you could, you could be a little more... Um, refined about that in terms of how it specifically looks, but I think it's the Venn diagram overlaps quite well with our core university mission and also how, what, what our graduates ought to look like. Now, the particular values were the product of like a thousand conversations. You know, one thing- With, with who? With everybody. One thing we did do, and this I found, that's a good question. I found this really fascinating. We, um, we conducted three separate surveys with faculty, staff, and students, asking them all kinds of questions around academic integrity. And one question which got a ton of response, maybe because it was so simple, was what words do you associate with this? And, and, right? and, and what we discovered was that uh, there is actually a big overlap between what students perceive as academic integrity and what faculty think are acad is acad academic integrity. The same words turned up, honesty, fairness, responsibility. Um, and we thought, okay, that's reassuring because it underscores for us that there is a bedrock commitment to this already here. Um, faculty get it in spades. Of course they do. They model it every day in their classrooms or labs or in their practicums and so on. And students get it. They have an innate sense of what's fair. I did the work. I've taken responsibility. I've worked well with others. I've tried to do it. And it, and it diminishes my effort and my degree if somebody else isn't playing by the rules. So we were encouraged by that. And really we teased out of that survey data sort of clusters of values. And then we slowly refined them and summarized them and came up with the five values in the charter. So originality is, is one. And we don't mean that people should be an avant-garde artist or a rebel. What we mean is that you know, your, your intellectual work should, be the, should primarily be the product of your own efforts. Um, in other words, don't go buy your work or hire someone to do it. This training is about you learning to be original. What, is, what do you bring to knowledge? That's a, one good example. The other value is integrity, fairness, collegiality, and, and, and responsibility. And maybe I don't go through all of them, but the last one, responsibility, is making sure that students understand that they have to do their part to maintain the high standards of their, of their course, of their university, and of the broad field of human knowledge. Like That's an important thing. Every time you cheat that, you bring it down a little tiny bit. And if everybody does it, the whole thing comes down. So it's your responsibility to uphold the highest standards possible. And we understand it takes time to learn that. You know, you won't know that in your first year. You won't even have mastered it in your fourth year. But we think it's important that over time you understand that there's a relationship with knowledge that you're responsible for and you have to behave in a kind of ethical way. And that means being responsible for high standards. So you mentioned, you know, we've 
you talked a lot about the students and the faculty, but you know, the university is a, a lot bigger of an mm-hmm. ecosystem than just that. What other, um, what roles do other departments and, and other individuals have to play in this culture of academic integrity? Yeah. That, I mean, that goes back to, I think that not, maybe not the last question, maybe the question before, you know, how do we get there? Um, it's not primarily the responsibility of students or faculty, although they're critical pieces. Uh, universities are populated by people who are highly skilled and experts in their area. So you and I are sitting here at the Center for Teaching and Learning. This node of expertise plays a critical role. So how does the Center for Teaching and Learning provide professional development opportunities for faculty that uh, either directly or indirectly helps them to shape this culture? So it could be maybe uh, interesting assessment strategies that uh, maybe they don't go, they don't solve it completely, but they work. They work well in terms of ensuring that students uh, embody these values. That could be one good example. Another one is uh, is the library. You know, the you know libraries more and more are. They're less and less about the bound volumes and more and more about the expertise of the people who are there. And uh, the library at Cape Breton University has been pivotal in creating a Moodle module for us that is made available to all students when they start their classes. And there's a review of our policies, there's scenario questions, there's a quiz, and you earn a badge. Does that on its own create this culture? No, it doesn't. But it's part, and again, it's part of the broader field of activity for trying to articulate. And that's coming out of the library. We can just skip over to the Reading and Writing Center. Uh, there is where students go for practical, firsthand uh, guidance with respect to their writing assignments. And there, you see the reinforcement there around very technical items like citations. And, but that is about relationship to knowledge, about respecting who has had the idea first and how you represent that. So just to come back to your, to your, your, your original uh, overview, uh, uh, yeah, universities are not just faculties and students. They're, 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 it's like a honeycomb, right? There are all these pockets of expertise. And I think if everybody is using the same language, everybody understands what the five core values are, and everybody works with students around those, then over time, you know, over time, you get to this culture of academic integrity. It's got to be reinforced from multiple directions using multiple and different kinds of strategies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in very practical uh, terms, how can faculty seek to engage with or, or, or create a, an environment of academic integrity within their own course um, when they are you know, tasks with with large class sizes, they are, you know, creating their exams and their assignments. Um, you know, we talk sometimes about authentic assessment and, and authentic assessment being a very important tool mm-hmm. in that process. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, it's, it, you know, a lot is asked of, of faculty in their classes. Right? I mean, first and foremost, it's about the content, the disciplinary specific content. They have to be experts at that and communicate to a large group of people, sometimes not under the best possible circumstances. So they're already carrying a heavy burden, right? And that's their professional training and and they're experts at that. And then as an institution, we layer in all kinds of other expectations. You know, can you think proactively about your pedagogy and here's everything you should be thinking about? Oh, can you think about difference and equity and diversity in your classroom? Here's another thing for you to think about, right? So I know that when I come at this with academic integrity, I'm layering on top of an already heavy, heavy, set of considerations. My advice for faculty is just to take on as much as you can handle and do it well. So if your commitment to this is, I'm gonna assign that Moodle module 
and that's 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 what I can do in this class, then then do that. Or I'll make a, a copy of the chart of academic citizenship available to students, and I might take half an hour to talk about it. If that's what you can do, then that's what you can do. And I understand that. Some will be more deeply invested, and some will not be. But that's okay. We're, I'm looking at the sum total um, of the efforts, and and where that might uh, take us um, eventually. You know, some faculty members they go all in on this. You know, in, 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 in the sciences, for example, you know, you can mentor academic integrity in the context of your lab experiences quite easily. Uh, if students are doing um, uh, placements in a community, you can talk about integrity and what that means in that context quite easily. Um, it's not going to be the same in, uh, you know, within programs, between programs, uh, within departments, across departments. My advice is, you know, pick a piece of, uh, uh, pick a patch of this field and just work it well. And if it's a little bit, Fantastic. If it's a lot, even better. But I think the sum total maybe gets us where we where we want to go. Um, you know, you kind of mentioned you were talking about different schools. This approach looks differently in different places. What about professional degree programs with professional designations mm-hmm. attached to them um, versus, let's say, a traditional BA? Um, how do they fit together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm curious about the examination process and that sort of stuff. Um, if uh, we need to get students prepared for something outside of CBU and, and the degree is working towards that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that's of concern. Yeah, I mean, we saw our work as uh, I mean, we we had very we had a, we had uh, on our task force we had people from the faculty of nursing there, which was a, which was a purposeful kind of uh, choice uh, because in the context of nursing or you could say education or maybe down the road uh, social work engineering you know there are external accreditation bodies that have both content and professional practice requirements and graduates must comply. So in talking about academic integrity, we're not prescribing methods to get there. Uh, it's just as, you know, we're not saying you have to go this route or try this approach, or be progressive here or uh, this kind of assessment over there. What we're really looking at is, is kind of the outcome and how faculty members design the path to get there is really, really up to them. In nursing, let's say, yeah, they have a professional code of conduct and they have their own internal mechanisms for ensuring that their students get there. Um, if they end up with a standardized exam at the end, and they do, that's that's what nursing prescribes. Um, our hope is that there's just broad alignment on the values um, and how people get there um, is really up to them. And there's an additional piece. You're quite right. Accreditation agencies, they call the shots. Let's just be honest. You're graduating a doctor, a lawyer, a nurse. Yeah, those bodies are very, very influential, as they should be, because those those graduates do very, very important work. Um, the group that got together to develop this strategy, um, does that still operate? Um, is this an ongoing project in the future? I'm, I'm sure that the, uh, the approach for the promotion of this uh, is going to have to change and shape and evolve as the university does and our student body grows or changes. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk about that governance model. Or yeah, how, yeah, yeah. Or, no, I don't or, govern it. Or, or, or even the, I, I suppose, the the responsibility and, and how do we, you know, check in on that every... Yeah, you're right. You know, the word governance puts a lot of people to sleep, right? But I, but it's important. It's really, really important. Um, you know, one thing we discovered, and we knew this kind of anecdotally, but we discovered it through our, uh, through our task force, through our research, was that academic integrity um, is handled by multiple people in multiple offices. It's very disjointed. Mm-hmm. You know, universities as an environment are, are really quite complicated. 
and trying to pull anything together under a central umbrella means you're crossing uh, all kinds of interesting relationships, collective agreements, uh, departmental structures, all kinds of stuff. So to make a go of it over the long, long term, you got to figure out how do, you, how do you thread these things together and keep people talking. So currently, it, and back to your first point, yeah, it is ongoing. We have a provost committee on academic integrity that meets regularly, uh, meets every month. Uh, we have a set agenda and we work through all these fields of activity. How is it going? What are we doing? Where do we need to push further? Here's just one example of that. Uh, we think recognizing and celebrating students who embody the best virtues uh, or best values of academic integrity is really, really important. And uh, just this fall, actually, we are launching the Dr. Mary Keating Medal in Academic Integrity. Uh, and that's our um, way of signaling the institutional, institution-wide importance of these things. Now, the idea isn't, oh, hooray, you didn't cheat, you didn't plagiarize. That's not the idea. We're trying to stress that aspirational side just to come maybe full circle. And, you know, it's, it's a medal. It's awarded. There's one medal available per school. It comes with, uh, uh, you know, a nice cash prize attached to it. The nomination process is wide open. So faculty, staff, or fellow students can nominate a student and say, you know, that person in my lab or that person in my field course, they were amazing research colleagues. And I want to recognize that. And this is how we elevate and show um, uh, what we value. My point is simply that this medal is the product of this group and it's ongoing. And to get something as simple as an award off the ground means you have to coordinate with everything from the registrar's office, through the finance office, through, through the, who's going to nominate, who's going to adjudicate. You need that ongoing governance just to pull off something as simple as a as a new award. And just as a footnote, we're, we're thrilled that um, Dr. Mary Keating agreed to have, to have it named after her. Anyone who knows Mary knows that she has been, um, you know, dogged in her pursuit of academic integrity uh, since the founding of this institution, really, and still does, right? She's an active member of Senate. She's a former um, uh, interim dean and so on and so forth. So so as a person, she's the person kind, per perfect kind of um, embodiment of the award and what we're driving at. So so yeah, there'll be a medal uh, with, with Mary's name on it. And the, uh, on an academic standing policy committee with her now. And she's just leading the charge. And oh it's yeah, just, it, no, you exactly. Sit back and listen to her talk about yeah. it. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And it's I think deserved. I think from 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 her perspective, I mean, she understands the broad narrative from Xavier Junior College to Cape Breton University and the long journey that has been establishing our academic reputation and our bona fides in the eyes of our 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 local catchment area and our competitors. Uh, and we've worked really hard at that. And academic integrity is a big piece of it. So I think she gets that. She, she's lived and understands that big narrative. And for that reason, another. So we thought she be she was appropriate for the medal. Another great reason why I think Mary is a good choice is because she is very considerate of all um, perspectives and identities. And oh yeah, uh, when when she talks about any particular issue, you can tell that she is considering many different variables yep. of a student's perspective and experience. And I think that that. Uh, I totally 100% agree. If Mary's present, I know, I think a solution to this is possible now. Yeah. Like, I don't know for how we're going to get there, but I know what's actually on the table. If she's not there, then I think, okay, this, this maybe maybe we're not going to get where we need to go. But I, I completely I completely agree. On that, I'd love to drill down just a little bit. Um, uh, how does this intersect with our commitment to accessibility at CBU and, and ensuring that um, all our students have ac access to the type of education and um, experiences that anybody else would at the university, mm -hmm. um, no matter their uh, culture, their their background, their language, um, 
And, you know, we have students who are coming in here from high school. We have students who have professional designations. They're from other countries. Um, does this academic integrity, this this culture kind of look different or is it flexible enough to accommodate for mm. all kinds of students? I think both. I think, I think both, actually. Um, you know, I won't uh, I won't lie. You know, one, uh, there was all kinds of reasons we really started digging into this work in 2020. Uh, one reason, not the only reason, but one reason was the transformation of the university's demographics. Um, you know, if you go back 15 years, the vast majority of our students were from our local catchment area, were from our local high schools, and you generally could assume there was certain a broad base of knowledge or lack of knowledge on certain subjects. When you have a student body that is A, almost twice as large, and B, comes from 40 different countries, you're dealing with very different uh, academic preparation. Um, and, and it's not all the same. So, you know, we started looking at this and thinking, okay, how do we kind of socialize people into a broad kind of middle ground where these there are these five values that we can, can, can consistently reinforce in a clear and accurate way and then maybe sort of sand down some of those, some of those differences uh, in terms of preparation. Just one quick example. I remember uh, meeting with one student who was from a, another part of the world and we were talking about an, an academic integrity infraction, right? Just one of those standard dean level conversations. And the student just simply said, you know, where I come from, um, you know, to to rework the words of an expert is to insult the expert. So why would I do that when I'm not the expert? Um, and that's actually really in a very, very interesting question. And so we discussed it and what it means. And this actually gets back to the, the value of originality. Like one thing we expect is more and more of the work is your own. But it was an, a legitimate and honest misunderstanding in terms of expectations. And it was very clear to me and to others that we needed to start talking about this um, a lot more. Uh, the other piece that, it, that we aren't talking about is also just the digital revolution and how that has propelled discussions of academic in integrity forward. Um, Policies that are 25 and 50 years ago just assumed that all knowledge was in a book, a single text that everyone had access to, and sharing was just not done in the way it's done today. The digital revolution has changed people's relationship to knowledge. The culture of sharing is much more pervasive, and strategies to not be honest uh, are, are ready and apparent to anybody. So the technology side is one that was propelling this propelling this forward. Back to your, for your point, like how does, how does, how does this whole commitment, uh, is it accessible? I think it is. Uh, I think all profs are, 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 are encouraged to thread this into their courses in whatever way they think works best. Um, a little, a lot, you know, merge it with other considerations. Absolutely. And I, I do think it does provide some, some centering and common ground around which we can, we can work. There was two points there I'd love to follow up on. Uh, Chris McDonald, who was one of our teaching chairs, um, he had done a, a, a talk about research work that he had done. And it was just a, for me, it was a, a eye-opening. And it was talking about that that idea that there is a entire segment of our student population um, that their education is this um, exact, not regurgitation, but repetition yeah. of... Uh, you know of what the the text was and this is the you know the true word it's exact mm -hmm. you, you know you're mm -hmm. supposed to, to to send that back to the faculty and um, it's totally antithetical to what the Western you know method of education these Western pedagogies are and I think has you know that's created qu quite a challenge for um, faculty over the last you know five ten years or so oh, I think so I, 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 by the same token I would say let's be really honest I mean people understand what cheating looks like 
you know, if you've written the formula on the bottom of your shoe or stashed a textbook in the bathroom, we have to come down on that super hard. Like, don't misunderstand me. Like, I, I don't think I'm not a <laughs> like some some forms of behavior need to be treated uh, directly um, um, and and it, in a strong way, because because regardless of background, everyone understands that that's not what is expected. It's these other zones, the more gray zones where we get what you've just what you've just described. And that's where I think we have to have really open and honest conversations. Um, I mean, I, I'm big on promoting the aspirational side, but I don't forget what the judicial side looks like because, and I, and I take that side seriously because there's so many students who do. Uh, the literature shows that the vast majority of students who make bad choices in terms of ethical decision making don't do so because they're bad apples. They do so because they've run out of time yeah. or they don't understand. There's a lot of bad decisions made at 12 Absol a.m. Abs you can see it. I mean, I've, I've, I would love to date stamp a, a student's paper, let's say, and show, oh, the writing looks pretty solid here. But as we get closer and closer to the deadline, watch them cut those corners. So most students, when they make those kinds of, I would say, kind of unfortunate decisions, I don't think they set out to, to, to act that way. I think they start to feel, okay, I've, I've worked too long. I've, I don't have, I'm not prepared. I'm, I don't have the skills or the support. And I just got to I'm going to make a, a strategic bet here. If I get it through and I get it and I pass and get a terrible mark, great. If I get caught, well, I was going to fail anyhow. So, uh, and we know from the literature that 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 you know that the, the, the tone that a professor can set uh, goes a long way to shaping students' behavior. Uh, if if integrity isn't set up as a value at the beginning, the students take their cues from that. It's like a parent and a child almost. If the tone isn't set, you know, the kids might act in a particular way. What are some of those supports that uh, we may have been lacking at CBU and are looking to to um, uh, put in place? Or what are some things that you hope might be in place in the future? Um, you know, we're talking about those students making poor decisions mm -hmm. at, you know, 12 a.m. Um, mm -hmm. as they need to get their paper in. Um, there was a I was at a conference a few months ago and uh, I forget what school it was it might have been University of Calgary and they instituted a chatbot um, in their library and writing center and this chatbot was seated with answers to all of these different questions that um, students might have and it was to get around the fact that uh, students were accessing trying to access their support services at times in which no one was scheduled to be there were in, yeah. not in the office. And a lot of the times the questions were simple FAQ questions, just things that, you know, could be thrown out and anybody could answer, but they were difficult to find on a website. You would have to go through uh, a whole document or a handbook. And um, it was a lot easier for them to interface with a chatbot like they do for, you know, any um, other service. Yeah. Any other service, any other sort of uh, um, uh, shopping, you know, website or whatever mm -hmm. they have. Um, and that. They found those chatbots. I think they might have even named it after their mascot, Dino. But um, it was incredibly successful, right? And that they were finding, yes, students were accessing that at 11.30 a.m. You know, what is uh, APA citation? You right. know, and yeah, that, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, are, are there things like that on the horizon? Are there things that you hope to see in the future uh, that could set our students up for uh, for better success. Yeah, I, I think we have to start to, I think the first step would be to recognize what students need, like where is the need? Like where, like is it in the arts, humanities, social sciences? Like where, I would start with some kind of needs assessment. Where do we think the need sits first? And once we get a sense for that, then I would, I would start to think about crafting um, um, particular strategies. 
uh, assessing that need is really hard. Um, and one way we're trying to get, this is not a direct answer to your question, it's, it's close though, um, uh, is we will be bringing forth to Senate this year the, our first academic integrity report. So all infractions are reported, you know, of a certain level and higher are reported through deans. They, they get cataloged in the registrar's office. So we're going to have a, our first mapping of where some of the issues are arising. And um, there'll be different levels of uh, visibility here. We have to protect student information, student identity, and there's particular audiences that should get particular kinds of information. But we might discover that the most, I'm just making this part up, okay? We might discover that the most significant issues, say, are in, I'm making this up, let's say it's first year physics. Just, you know, we'll just, if, if, if the number of reports that go through the dean's office are a good proxy, we might find that maybe that's what, and I think with that information, then we could start t talking about future supports and, and future approaches. And there it might look different. Maybe what's reported there consistently is students are consulting with online uh, um, uh, resources that, that provide solutions to their physics problems. It's CHEG or it's something else. And uh, that's the issue. And if we discover that, then I think we start to direct particularly tailored kinds of resources to that, to that, to that area. Uh, that's where I would begin. That's where I would begin. Uh, and then I would go from there. It's, it's just, there's just so much out there. I don't, I don't know where you'd begin productively. Um, so getting a sense for where some of the soft spots might be, that's what, that's where I, where I would begin. Um, and maybe, maybe it's people straight out of high school. I don't know. Is it uh, students who already have a degree and are, and are starting here from a different country? I don't know, but we should, maybe the report will start to point us in the right direction. Um, the Center for Teaching and Learning will have a important role, to, I think, to play in this, in developing the culture and informing faculty about uh, modern strategies and, and things that they need to keep aware of. Um, already we've done a couple of videos with mm -hmm. you and we're doing this podcast series um i hope to have things like workshops and and uh more resources in the future um i know that you know for instance there faculty who have been successful uh in this modern age as everybody had switched to online teaching and learning and now are kind of moved back in in some form of uh, of hybrid or both um, those that just assume that all resources are available, that your slides are online, the folks that aren't building up walls to try and protect their, um, their materials, uh, and, and are shifting their mindset to what is, uh, expected of students or what is going to be available. Um, they seem to be having, uh, an easier time of it and folks who might be uh, sort of building up those walls or trying to, you know, restrict folks from being able to access, um, they're maybe the most surprised when their papers are shared online or when, um, and I'm wondering if there's any other considerations uh, for faculty that you would like to communicate to them. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't have a good answer to that because that's a really, really hard question, actually. It was a hard question for me to ask. Well, no, to no, it, I, I can see where, I can see what you're reaching for and it, it, it might be, it's possible that earlier in our conversation when I, when I simply said something like, you know, faculty should take on the pieces they can take on within the scope of their responsibilities and try and do that little bit well. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't want that to sound like I am somehow minimizing or I'm, I'm inattentive to some of the really difficult questions of 
you know, the economics, uh, the technology um, um, that are involved in some of these things. So, so let me just give one practical example. Let, let, let's imagine that, um, you know, you, you have an online synchronous course and you want to have a final exam. Um, how do you do that final exam in a way that, uh, that, that maintains academic integrity? Like, like as a practical matter, how do you do that? Well, one strategy, and many universities use it, uh, is a technological one where you, you know, there's all kinds of people that do this. So you lock down the student's browser, you, you, you track their hand and eye movements, you set the timer. Um, the questions are, are mixed for different students so they can't be on their phones and sharing them as they're, like you, all of that stuff. And that's one one strategy, and many people use them. And I know that the CTL takes a, has recommendations around that. Um, the other approach would be kind of old-fashioned. Well, you you get people to sit invigilated exams wherever they live, and then the exam papers are sent into the university. That's kind of old school, but it, it certainly has its virtues. Um, I would say that neither strategy is optimal. Um, so what do you what do you really do? Uh, well, one thing one strategy might be okay. Redesign. Do you need a final exam? You know, like do you actually need to do it that way? Um, and if you do, then what does that actually look like? And how do you keep that, um, uh, keep the academic integrity there? If you don't, well, what's the alternative? I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this because I, I know what I would do. Um, I don't. I, but I recognize that the, the field of options there and there's no clear and obvious solution. But to me, that's a practical current dilemma that as a scholarly community with all the appropriate professionals that support that, that we have to kind of think our way through. Um, because it's going to bump up against all these things you've talked about, professional accreditation. It's, going to, it's all going to be in there. Um, what the solution is, I'm not sure, but I recognize uh, the factors that, are, that would have to be considered. Yeah, we have thousands of students um, and, and many that, <laughs> like, no matter the technology we throw at trying to lock down or prevent any type of plagiarism or cheating, um, a solution for you know a, a workaround for that detection software um, is just a few clicks away, and, mm-hmm. and just yep. a problem for somebody to solve, and then that runs rampant, and the the thing is rendered useless. Um, and it, it would be, I think, pretty impossible uh, for us to to keep trying to catch up to that software and technology. Uh, it's not to say that they're um, entirely useless; they do have a role. Um, I know that faculty were uh, taken aback, a little bit surprised um, around Turnitin, right? We have mm-hmm. Turnitin as a tool. We use it in Moodle, um, and it is a way for us to look at the originality of a paper and see and, and to sort of measure that against other papers in our own system and then nationally, internationally. But because Turnitin servers rest in the United States, they are uh, subject to, well, everything is subject to the Nova Scotia um, privacy laws and uh, Turnitin servers are open to the Patriot Act. And so um, uh, folks were a little bit surprised when, uh, you know, we had to give options to students to be able to opt out of, of Turnitin. It was very difficult for them. And, and I had a lot of, and I do have a lot of sympathy because class sizes are large, right? You might have 70, 80 students. And uh, if you want to um, go through and find the originality in a student's work, now you have to search for keywords and kind of do it old school. Um, We do have Google now. You didn't have Google 20 years ago to be able to do that kind of work. Um, 
but I need to do the work myself and, and our unit does. And I think, you know, the entire university to try and find the strategies that are the best way to do that detect plagiarism detection themselves and turn in should never really be used for that in the first place. So, um, well, it turned in can be a blunt, a blunt, a blunt instrument, right? The originality score is, is, uh, is indicative of something. It's not indicative of everything. And, um, um, there will always be a need for the professor or the TA to apply their best judgment to what those scores look like. It's possible to have a high, or it's possible to, to detect a high level of, uh, correspondence between a given assignment and what's available out there, uh, uh, digitally in the world. It may or may not be a clear indication of intent to deceive. And, uh, uh, that's where um, um, you know a faculty member needs to apply some some judgment. I think the vast majority of them try to do that within the time constraints that they have and the the resources that they that they possess. This new strategy policy approach um, it's been in place for a little while. Mm. Um, have you noticed any difference in the conversations you're having with faculty and members of the CBU community or the things that are escalated to your desk at this point? Well, it's it's a good question, and um, um, w w one answer or one um, experience I am having, and it's I would say it's altogether new, but I'm having it more often, and I think it might be an artifact of our new of our new policy approach. Um, you know, one part of our academic integrity policy gives faculty members the discretion to handle um, student breaches that they think are just are just like like fluky or stupid or they didn't know better where they don't detect an attempt to deceive or to misrepresent sort of like a really just a like a stupid penalty in hockey or something the the the, the policy gives the faculty member the ability to make that judgment to treat it as a kind of a teachable thing and then to solve it at that level, the low level of the course saying, okay, listen, you're not doing it right, but I don't think you have a sweet clue what you're doing. So this is what we're going to do to straighten this out. And if it happens again and again, then maybe it escalates to the dean and it's on your academic record. I'm having more conversations with faculty members when they have cases and they say like, I'm not sure whether to elevate this one or not. And that's great. Like those conversations, if you multiply them over and over again, that's how you build a culture. People are talking about it. Before it used to be like, yep, straight to the dean. I don't want to deal with this. And now, now I get emails like, hey, take a look at this paper. What do you think? And I'll it's say- It's partially to the dean. Yeah. They're sending it to you to get your, their preview. Of that's what, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're pre-positioning it a little bit. Or, or they talk to an academic integrity lead in their, in their school, or they talk to a department chair, or just a colleague. Um, I'm not fussy about where the conversation happens. I'm just happy that's taking place. Mm -hmm. Now, I think they happened before, but I think that what, what they're trying to determine is not whether it's plagiarism or cheating or not. They're trying to decide, like, what scale is it? And can I teach the student here or should I go straight to the dean and there'll be a penalty? And then the kind of the teaching moment is a little bit different at that point. That's one early sign that maybe things are changing. I don't know if my experience is the same experience as other deans, to be quite frank with you. I, uh, uh, you know, School of Arts and Social Sciences deals in plagiarism a lot, right, as a, as a concern. So it makes some sense that conversation is probably ongoing already. But that's one thing that I'm, I'm noticing is, um, is a bit different. 
I would like to see what uh, the possible knock-on effect of having the uh, the Dr. Mary Keating medal might be. That it, be- I'm hoping it becomes a thing that we look forward to. You know, every fall and every spring when the medals are awarded and they're given a certain pride of place at the university that we think they deserve, and whether that will over time shape a kind of positive conversation around these values. Excellent. Is there anything else that you would like the faculty to know about the policy, about this culture that we're starting to develop, or anything? Um, that you'd like to see on the horizon. Yeah, I would just uh, uh, just make just, just just that faculty should know if they just quickly Google cbu.ca slash or academic integrity. That's our that's our home for all of this stuff. Details about the Dr. Mary Keating Medal are there. The nomination process, uh, full accounting of our policy, links to supportive resources on campus, whether it's the library, the CTL, um, uh, Math and Science Center, uh, Re- Reading and Writing Center. That's all there. Um, um, that's sort of where you go to get that information. And uh, there's also uh, a user's guide to the policy that if faculty members aren't sure what they're looking at, there's a user's guide that helps people adjudicate what they're looking at and how they might handle it. So it's all there. It's not a bad place to start. And and of course, our standing committee is uh, always open to ongoing conversations and policy recommendations or critique and feedback. So, so never he- hesitate to come forward and speak with us. Well, thanks for coming in and talking about academic integrity with yeah. us today. Yeah, thanks, AJ. I really appreciate the conversation, as always. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to Beyond the Class, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cape Breton University. I thought that was an okay episode. Andy's always so kind. Uh, in meetings and conversation, helping you get to your own point. So, so thanks, Andy, for that. I also want to give a shout out to my CTL team. We got Nicole, Rod, Terry, Laura, Debbie, Courtney. You guys make this a, a great and easy place to work. Um, if you have any ideas for future episodes, let me know. So, I mean, a, an email at aj underscore Fraser at cb.ca. Or if you want to be interviewed yourself, let me know what topic you're interested in. Be happy to have a conversation. Um, so uh, follow along. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, Google, and we'll be getting in your ears soon with a future episode. Okay. Have a great weekend and best wishes. Best wishes.